So Money episode 1233, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Ask Farnoosh, where I answer your listener questions, the top questions that have been, you know, keeping you up at night and uh, anything to do with money, of course, but also life and parenting, everything in between. You can always reach me on Instagram. The best way is to direct message me there. Follow me on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi and send me a direct message. I collect a lot of questions from there, but also if you're not on social media or you don't care about Instagram, no problem. You can email me Farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. And if you visit the website, so money podcast.com. There's a button. You just click on it. It says, ask Farnoosh, drop me your question there. And we're off to the races. Today, we have questions about early retirement and how much to withdraw from your retirement funds. If you're retiring early, does the 4% rule apply? Question about how much to invest in your company's stock purchase program. What's a good amount? Modular homes. One listener is interested in buying a prefab modular home and she wants to know whether it's a good idea as far as being a rental property, bringing in investment income. And what are my favorite So Money podcasts? You know, I've done over 1,200 episodes. And if you've been with me from the get go, congratulations, you deserve like a gold medal, an Olympic medal. But for many people who are just subscribing to So Money in recent months, uh, they're emailing me and uh, with a bit of overwhelm asking, where should we begin? I mean, we could go back to the first episode, but then we wouldn't really catch up for a while. So are there some go-to episodes that I think can get people a jump start or are some of my favorite episodes? So stay tuned for that. At the end, I'll be revealing some of my all-time favorite episodes for new listeners. And if you want to go back and listen to them, that's fine too. Speaking of some of my favorite episodes this week, there were definitely some amazing shows. If you missed them on Monday, Annabelle Gerwich Comedian and actress and best-selling New York Times best-selling author Annabelle Gerwich stopped by to share insights from her latest memoir called You're Leaving When? Subtitle is Adventures in Downward Mobility. It's a collection of raw and honest essays that capture Annabelle's issues grappling with midlife from divorce to financial fragility. She couldn't pay her mortgage at one point, so she took in some temporary renters. And it's hilarious, but also hard, the stuff that she's talking about. I love her ability to allow us to reflect with a smile, which can be really hard sometimes on life's true hardships. Her stories are personal, but I think very universal. And in fact, a listener wrote in, because Annabelle is approaching 60 years of age, and a listener wrote in and said that, I want to especially thank you for hosting Annabelle on your show because she admitted she's about to turn 60 this year. So am I. 
and it's been holding me back from reaching out to you sooner, Farnoosh. I have so much shame that I am not where I should be financially and with an eventful, hopefully, retirement in my future. I love that you speak to your quote-unquote young audience. I pretend I'm 35 and trying to get my life together, but I am not. Listening to Annabelle was really helpful for me and gave me the courage to reach out to you. I love your show and your amazing knowledge and support. I look forward to turning my financial life around with your guidance and humor. Much love and respect, Allison. Well, Allison and everybody else who may feel like they're not where they're supposed to be financially, whether you're approaching 60 or approaching 30, anyone, I think this episode with Annabelle Gerwich will really speak to you. You will feel seen and because it tackles uh, a lot of the unfortunate realities of living in 2021 as a human on this earth, uh, you may have done all the quote unquote right things as Annabelle did. You know, she said that she saved in her twenties. She was the breadwinner in her marriage and it didn't work out. And not all of it was her fault, right? It, there were just some things that happened to her um, and, and, and how she is navigating all of that with a sense of positivity and optimism. Um, you got to listen to this episode. And just this last Wednesday, we sat down with Janine Furpo, who brought us advice on how to create a values-driven investment strategy. I know a lot of us care about where we put our money, whether it's supporting a small business and also in our investment portfolio, right? Making sure that our future dollars are also going to support companies that are doing the work that we respect and we feel is aligned with our values, whatever your values are. So that's where our conversation with Janine starts is sort of identifying what you should care about personally and how to align that uh, with the investment choices that you make. Janine has a long history of working at the intersection of women and their money. She's got a book as well called Activate Your Money, Invest to Grow Your Wealth and Build a Better World. I had to ask, I mean, can we really build a better world by making more socially conscious choices in our investment portfolio? Sometimes you might feel like it's just too big of a problem to tackle, right? Like global warming or racial inequities or global poverty. I mean, these are big, big systemic problems. And as individuals, sometimes we can feel helpless, but she really gives us the encouragement and evidence as to why investing in a way that is aligned with your personal values can help make the world a better place. So that was Wednesday with Janine Furpo. Let's head over to the iTunes review section and pick our reviewer of the week. If you'd like to be considered for these weekly 15-minute money sessions, it's very simple. Leave a review on any Apple device where you listen to So Money. It could be the podcast player. It could be iTunes, wherever you get this podcast through Apple. And I will pick someone to get a free 15-minute money session with me. And this week, we're going to say thank you to Nish22-1988, who left a review where she says, So Money is so helpful. Really love the perspective given in this podcast as a woman of color. I think it's so important to become financially independent since a lot of us weren't taught some of these fundamentals in school or even at home. Farnoosh does a phenomenal job of keeping the topics interesting and shares lots of angles within finance. Really love all the advice. Well, Nish, get in touch. Nish22, 1988. You can email me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. Let me know you left this review or on Instagram, direct message me. I'll shoot back a link where we can hang out. You choose a time. Thank you so much for this review and thank you for being part of the community.
All right, let's hit the mailbag and answer your money questions, starting with Stacy, who has a question about the 4% rule. For those of you who are not familiar with this, the 4% rule is common investment advice for retirees. And the idea was established way back in the 90s by a man named William Bengen. And the 4% rule says this, that if you are a retiree with a 30-year time horizon... So let's say you started saving around 25 and you're going to retire around 60, 65, that you could spend about 4% of your portfolio the first year in retirement and then following that, an inflation-adjusted withdrawal in subsequent years. Uh, The rule is something that is very much a rule of thumb when it comes to retirement spending. It's a great starting place if you're thinking about how much you want to have in retirement to spend every year. What is that 4% of? And then that's your total sum that you want to have saved more or less by retirement age. Now, assuming too that you're going to continue to invest a lot of that money, even in your retirement, you're not going to withdraw. You're not going to go entirely to cash at 65. I don't recommend that, that you still invest a portion of your portfolio, a moderate portion in the stock market, the rest in uh, cash and fixed income. But the 4% rule of thumb is just that. It is a rule of thumb. And so our friend Stacy read an article actually on Vanguard's website that if you're planning to retire early, so in your 50s or even your 40s, clearly you can't go by this 4% rule. I mean, if you do want to still go by this 4% rule at 45, what does that mean? And you plan to live a long life, what does that mean? That you need to have a lot more money saved potentially by 45 than you would normally at 65 because you're going to need more of it over the years. And so uh, you could withdraw 4%, but you're going to need a bigger sum awaiting you at age 45. If you wanted to withdraw 2% at 45, then in theory, you may not need as much money saved as somebody who is 65, or you might need the same amount of money. The bottom line is that this is very personal. I like the 4% rule of thumb as a starting place. And then from there, give or take 2%. I actually read a really wise article uh, somewhere online. It was like a personal finance website and the journalist had talked to a number of financial experts, financial planners, and given you know where inflation was headed and the uncertainty in the economy and the stock market, which is always more or less true, like you were always in an uncertain place, that this article was concluding that while the 4% rule has merit, in the first, say, five years of retirement, It does help. It would behoove retirees to play it real conservatively. So if you can withdraw maybe 3% the first year, the first few years, and live comfortably off of that, do that. You know, try to save more of your money for later in retirement when these unknown costs, like related to healthcare and health issues, might show up. And if you can continue to work even in the first 10 years of retirement, even though you're retired, but maybe you're bringing in some sort of income, whether it's through consulting or passive income, keep at it. Because the uncertainty of life in the later years of retirement suggests that it would be smart to be really conservative in the beginning of retirement, to try to save your money as much as possible, to not immediately start with that 4% withdrawal rate off the bat. 
in year one of retirement, that maybe you try to stretch it out and try to live as conservatively as possible in the first few years so that you can have more for the later years. But yeah, if you're planning to retire in your 50s and early retiree, you kind of have to figure out your own rule, right? And again, retirement savings, there's so much content around this, so many articles. I think the most important takeaway for everybody is just save, do some math, run some calculations, know what your social security payout is going to be down the road. And you can do this right now after you finish listening to this podcast, go to ssa.gov, go through their links and fill in some blanks. They will tell you what your estimated social security payment will be in retirement and work from there. Um, Add to that what you think you're going to have saved by 60 or 65 in your retirement portfolio. And what would 4% of that mean? Talk to your financial planner, run the free calculators. It's all very personal. Are you going to work? Are you going to sell a business? Are you going to travel? I don't know. So these articles don't know either. It's really safe to say that everyone's going to have to come up with their own rule. But I like the 4% rule simply as a starting off point. And not for nothing, but Vanguard, where you read this article, I read the article and it doesn't really tell you anything groundbreaking or new. There's not a new study here. It's simply saying something very accurate, which is that your retirement spending rule should be personal to you and your goals. As the article title says, you may need to update the 4% rule for early retirees. Well, yeah, because that 4% rule was talking about people who retire at the quote unquote normal age of something around 65. It's kind of one of those articles that gets you in and then they are like, hey, check out the Vanguard tools, check out, you know, call a Vanguard financial planner, check out our investment uh, str- options. It's really like an article to then get you to rethink your retirement and consider hiring Vanguard. So that's basically what this is. I wouldn't read too much into this other than something that is always true, which is that your retirement strategy needs to be personal to you. Okay, next up is Jane. She says, hey, Farnoosh, I listen to your podcast religiously and I have been committed to getting educated on all things finance. My company just recently went public and I have the opportunity to participate in an employee stock purchase program. I can contribute up to 15% of my annual salary through payroll deductions in exchange for the purchase of my company's shares at a 15% discount. My question is, how would you recommend I go about deciding what percentage of my salary to allocate? How would you approach this? I'm married. My husband and I have no debt except for our mortgage. We have a baby on the way. We have a six-month emergency fund on hand. He will have a pension through his job. We have a Roth IRA and we invest each month in the S&P 500 through an ETF. I also have a 401k through my job where I contribute 6%. My employer matches 3%. Thanks for your help. All right, Jane, wow, you got a lot of ducks in a row here. You've got your rainy day savings, no debt except the mortgage. You are investing for retirement, taking advantage of that full employer match with your contribution. That's almost 10%. 
Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And I would say this is the sort of stuff you want to have squared away before you consider something extra like an employee stock purchase program. It's cool that they're letting you tap into this at a discount. Uh, Here's my thought and my philosophy on employee stock purchase programs. My recommendation, what I would do is to not invest any more than 10% of my total investment balance. So forget about your salary for a second. Look at how much your investments are totaling right now. And just you, not your husband, just you. How much do you have in your S&P 500 ETF? How much do you have in your 401k right now? And how much will you have by the end of the year, considering the continuing contributions that you're making? How much are you going to have at like, say the start of 2022? You know, of course, you don't know where the market's going to go, but how much are you personally contributing as a sum to these other retirement accounts? Let's say you're going to have $100,000 by the end of this year in these retirement plans. Then I would allocate no more than 10% of that number, so $10,000, in your company's ESP plan, employee stock purchase plan. $10,000 in that account towards those stocks. We've heard from guests on this show that have said that they over-invested in their company's stock and paid the price. When the stock price fell, their portfolio really took a hit. And that's because they weren't diversified enough. This all goes back to wanting to be diversified and investing any more than 10% in any particular stock or any particular bond in my book is too much. It's great to be able to buy stock at a discount. That's an incentive as an employee of your company, but very important to continue to stay diversified and spread the risk over all different types of investments in your portfolios combined. I would give you this advice if you were asking to buy any stock, any bond. Um, I think sometimes we feel such loyalty to our company. There were there have been studies done that show employees are so loyal to their companies, they believe everything they say. <laughs> they believe that if the company says, we're going to make 10% this year, that they're going to make 10%. But it's just an estimate, right? Yes, you're there day in and day out. You have incredible perspective at how your company's doing, and you might feel really positive about investing in your company and the future of your company, but you have to stay really vigilant and prudent. You can do this. I'm not saying don't do this. Invest no more than 10% of your total net, of your total investment balance in this purchase program, in the stock purchase program. But more than that, my fear is that if your company goes through hardship and that affects their stock price, that affects your portfolio. We've talked a little bit about this on the show before. And if you recall Sally Krawcheck, who's the founder of Elevest, who is a Wall Street veteran, she had admittedly a lot of money in her company stock at one point. And, you know, she was the CEO. So she was extremely bullish on the company and she put a ton of her net worth in that stock. And when the financial crisis hit and the company stock went to dollars, like a few dollars per share from wherever it was, like $30, $40 per share, you better believe her net worth took a hit. And this was the thing that she never expected. Cautionary advice to anybody working anywhere and your company just IPO, like it's off to a great start, right? They're, everyone's really positive. Everyone's really excited. But don't let that cloud your judgment. Invest, but up to a limit. I say 10%. 
Okay, Gina has a question I have never gotten before, and she's asking, do you recommend Farnoosh investing in pre-manufactured homes? I live in Florida, and as they are very affordable, I think they could be a good rental property with a good return. I would need to do some research on the maintenance of that type of property. All right, Gina, so... You know, I love real estate. So I I looked into this modular homes or pre-manufactured homes can be a lot cheaper to build. But the trade-off is that, and this is according to websites dedicated to modular homes, they say that the appreciation and resale value is lower than a custom-built home. So if you're looking to flip this, you may do better by buying a home that is already built, uh, that is more customized, that's not, that is not made in bulk and shipped out like modular homes are. That's a little bit more, you know, customized. But as a rental property, this is interesting. And really the only way you're going to be able to get to an answer is to research the area and where you're looking to rent out this home future home. Look at where rent prices currently are. Renters do care about the quality of a home. They want to make sure that the home is built well. So if you're going to go with a modular home where, you know, I don't know, they build these homes in bulk. What's the quality? Does it have good bones, right? You don't want to have a situation to your point where it's going to become a maintenance nightmare because everything's breaking, everything needs replacement after a year. So really important to research the company. Make sure that you talk to existing owners even. Uh, How is your property holding up? What have been your average monthly or annual maintenance costs? That definitely needs to get factored into the overall investment calculation and to make sure this is even worth renting out after you take into account your mortgage costs, your utility costs, your maintenance costs. And then what are you going to charge for rent? Are you netting positive here? Is it even worth your time at that point? I also found out that these types of homes do require a little bit of a heftier financing on your end, 20% down payment. So if you weren't prepared for that, that is also something that may give you pause. This goes back to any math you would do for rental properties, right? What's my mortgage? What are my taxes? What kind of maintenance costs may I be facing? Subtracting that from the going rent right now in that neighborhood for a similar kind of home. What is that on a monthly basis for you, cash flow basis for you? If it's a lot, Great. If it's not a lot, mm, at that point, you know, you got to think about what your time is worth because this is the sort of thing where if you're going to be landlording, you know, some people have a knack for that and like it. Some others don't, and it's a real chore. So think about it. I think HGTV makes us all want to be homeowners and have an Airbnb. Uh, I know I'm in that camp right now. This weekend, I was talking to my husband about where we could buy a rental property that would you know, give us some good worthwhile cash flow. And we're looking at some places in Pennsylvania, close to our in-laws, close to my in-laws, where maybe they could, you know, check in once in a while. We could stay there when we're visiting. So, you know, I get it. I get the fervor. But Gina, you got to really do the math and know about how this home gets built. What kinds of materials are they using? Talk to current owners How's the house holding up? Because yeah, you don't want this to turn into a maintenance nightmare. And last but not least, Percy writes in, she just started listening to the podcast and is desperate for my favorite shows so she can kind of skip around. (laughs) 
Uh, I get it. You don't want to listen to 1,230 episodes before you get to uh, the next and newest. Um, so yeah, there's so many shows, obviously, and it, these are not by any measure my absolute favorite because that's like picking your favorite child. Um, but I will say that some of the shows that I've gotten great feedback on that are ranking really well Overall, you know, people uh, like to listen to them over and over again. There are some repeat guests that I've had on the show, which I think speaks volumes. If you want good, just practical, all around financial advice, interviews that touched on everything from saving to investing to earning, I would say start with the financial experts that I've had on this show, the true financial authors, the, the certified financial planners. They include Ramit Sethi, who's the author of I Will Teach You to Be Rich, Aaron Lowry, who is the author of the Broke Millennial series. She's written about investing and how to have you know weird conversations with your family and friends and loved ones around money, how to live your best financial life. Ramit and Aaron are top notch, specifically when it comes to earning money. I really liked my conversations with Rachel Rogers, who's the founder of Hello7, and she is uh, also the author of We Should All Be Millionaires, particularly writing for women and women of color. Alexandra Carter is a negotiation expert. She is a professor at Columbia. She is the author of Ask for More, 10 Questions to Negotiate Anything. It was published by Simon & Schuster. And in our conversation, we talked about you know asking for a raise, even in a recession, um, how to basically get whatever you want in life, <laughs> whether that's money or a job or you know your kids to eat their broccoli. Alexander Carter, definitely um, someone that I now even consider a friend. George Kinder was an episode with uh, someone that I, I, you know, had never heard of, but I felt really embarrassed at the time because he's a big deal. He is known as the father of financial life planning. His episode focused on the three questions that we all need to ask ourselves in order to transform our relationship with money. George Kinder, that was way back in 2019, I did that interview and I, I never stopped thinking about it. I consi I consistently reference it when people are like, well, I need to like get a handle on my finances. I need to set goals. I'm like, you gotta listen to George Kinder. He has got you covered. He's got these three questions. They really get your wheels turning and get you excited and motivated to plan your financial life. Seth Godin is a show that I often replay <laughs> or that people have come to me saying that episode, I am constantly replaying it because there's so many truth bombs and financial nuggets, life nuggets in that episode. Seth, I have to say, is someone that I just admire so much. He is super accomplished, but also like really nice and thoughtful and generous with his ideas and his sharing of his advice. He came on the show. I was super nervous. I prepared for days and I was really proud of myself for being able to steer that conversation and the way that it turned out with all of the stuff that he shared. You know, he he told me offline, he was like, I don't really want to answer any personal money questions for our And I was like, okay, that's going to be a little weird because the show's about personal money conversations. But he said, I'm anything you find on my blog, Anything you read that I've written or that I have been featured in is fair game. So I plowed through all of his books, his blog, and I, you know, searched term words like money and rich and 
I found a lot of stuff that he had already revealed about money or he had sort of, you know, alluded to. And I just grabbed onto all of that stuff. And we brought it up during this podcast stuff that he'd forgotten that he had said. But I was like, nope, on your blog, on this date, you wrote about money. And so we talked about money, even though that wasn't something that he was maybe expecting. But he had to go there because it was all fair game. It was already stuff that he had <laughs> disclosed elsewhere. And at the end of the interview, I think we were already done and wrapped. He was like, Farnoosh, she did a great job. You're really good at your job. And I was like, oh my God, <sighs> that was a huge compliment and, and something that I have taken with me. So do your homework. Anything's possible. Seth Godin, he talked about what it means to be rich, how going to the edge in your life gives you leverage, the resources beyond money that we can all take advantage of to live more meaningful lives. I mean, it was jam-packed. So start with Seth, start with Ramit, who actually was, I think, a disciple of Seth Godin. No, no coincidence there. Rachel Rogers, Aaron Lowry, Alexander Carter. And I have to say, check out the episode with my parents, the Tarabis. It is just a very revealing episode. I think you'll learn a lot about me. You'll learn a lot about them. You'll learn a lot about oh, sort of the characteristics of immigrants. They come here with nothing, how they turned into gold. And uh, just, you know, we had a good time on that episode and a lot of people like to listen to that show. I think it's um, for them, it gives them an insight into my life. And if you want more of that, well, I got a book coming and that's going to be a couple of years from now, but I'm in the works writing a memoir about growing up the daughter of immigrants, how their grip on me, their fearful grip on me, uh, you know, made for a bit of pretty lousy childhood in some ways, but uh, a fruitful adulthood, let me tell you, because the world's a scary place. And if you grow up looking at life through this lens of fear and skepticism, things work out. Things have a way of working out for you. Anyway, thanks for that question, Percy. And I'm going to put all of this on the So Money Podcast website in the show notes for this episode. So if you weren't scrambling and if you weren't scribbling down all those names, don't worry, I've got all the links uh, in the show notes for this episode. Have a great weekend, everybody. We have some big announcements coming uh, soon. I know you've been on holding your breath. I've been sharing how I have this big career announcement that I'm going to be making and you'll be hearing about it soon. Stick with me on the podcast, on Instagram, on Twitter. That's where I'll be sharing it. And I hope you'll like the news. I think you will. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope your weekend is so money. Money.